Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass Amherst student Maura Murray disappeared in the White Mountains of New Hampshire in one of the most perplexing mysteries of our time. For years, we have covered Maura's case and the tireless online community that surrounds it in great detail. We have since expanded our mission with this series, raising awareness and shining a light on the stories of other missing persons. We now sit on the board of directors of the nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing, which was founded by Bruce Maitland. Bruce's daughter, Brianna Maitland, went missing from Montgomery, Vermont on March 19th of 2004, just six weeks after and about 80 miles away from where Maura Murray vanished. Private Investigations for the Missing aims to assist with investigations for underserved families whose missing loved ones have been forgotten by the media or by law enforcement. Through our growing community, we hope to shed a light on these cold cases. Families and loved ones can reach out to us at investigationsforthemissing.org. This is Missing. Welcome to Missing. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing so well. How are you today? I'm doing great as well, Lance, and very excited to introduce this case to our audience. It is the disappearance of Camille Dardanes Dotson, and the lovely woman that we speak with on the line, her name is Gabrielle Prue, and uh, she is very knowledgeable in this case and was really just a delight to work with in uh, in discussing this case. Oh, absolutely. And we fought through some technical difficulties in the beginning. And this is a real testament to her uh, will and her professionalism. We fight through these technical difficulties. We come up with alternatives. It really almost got to the point where we were going to reschedule. And then everything just fell into place. And she just went. 
not reading a script, but like she had a script in front of her. And she didn't. This was all from her own research, from memory, from her notes. And she really gives a full breakdown of Camille's disappearance that is very, very informative. That's right. We do kind of jump right into the conversation once it gets started. Um, But I do want to mention that Camille Dotson, she has been missing from Las Vegas, Nevada, she went missing somewhere between September 4th, 1994 and September 26th, 1994. She was 30 at the time of her disappearance, and she's now 57 years old. She is a white female. Uh, like you said, she's missing from Las Vegas, Nevada. She's about 5'7", 5'8", 125 to 145 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes, and she has a tattoo on her right hip of a heart with the word Cruz, that's C-R-U-Z, in the middle. Anyone with information, please contact the Clark County Sheriff's Office, 702-229-2907. And this case came to us by way of private investigations for the missing Lance. Um, So it's kind of one that is from our case files, but doesn't have a private investigator assigned to it yet, or maybe maybe it won't at all. I'm not sure. Um, But this is just one sort of level of case coverage that we do at private investigations for the missing. This is a very similar stage that we're at in comparison to the work that PIs for the Missing is doing and has done with the Archer Ray Johnson disappearance. We introduce these disappearances to the audience. Typically, there's an expert on it, uh, someone who's not affiliated with law enforcement, a lot like Gabrielle here. And then it opens up to family, to maybe hopefully a private investigator being assigned to it. But right now we're in that same stage. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for listening. Please follow us on Twitter at MissingCSM. We're on Instagram and Facebook as well. Don't forget to check out all of our wonderful shows at crawlspace-media.com. Can you tell us how you got into the case? So a while ago, um, I used to post on Reddit about missing persons cases that don't have a lot of attention and that really weren't ever talked about. And I made one about Camille when I saw her name on the Charlie Project and couldn't believe that a woman with so much fame in life could go missing and have nobody look for her. Ashley then contacted me right after and said, I saw what you wrote. I have more information. You know, no one ever helps me with this. So we started talking every day about it and going into more ways we could get more information. And we quickly became very good friends. Um, Her, me, and Camille's childhood friend, um, Ellen, we have a little group chat where we kind of meet up every day and discuss what we found, um, new ideas we've had. Um, We we work really hard on it, all three of us. And mostly we do it through uh, public records requests and from just tracking down people that were involved with them and their circle. Um, But we definitely, between the three of us, we've been able to find a lot of more information than there was before. And we even have a new police officer assigned to the case and um, he's been kind of helpful. So she and I, we're we're just good friends now and uh, we work really hard on this together. Okay. And uh, you reached out to private investigations for the missing? I was looking a while back for different organizations like that. Um, 
because we really, we needed to get her, her name out there. The more we publicized this case and got Facebook pages and YouTubers and podcasts to talk about it, the more people were coming out of the woodwork with tips and information. And I knew her, she stayed here. I knew her, she dated this guy. She went by this name. Um, most of the people in the area really didn't know that she had gone missing. Um, it wasn't talked about. There was never a newspaper article about her. There was never anything on the news about her. Um, so people who knew her really had no idea and they didn't even know that the information they have is valuable to us. So we were looking for ways to get to get it out there and to get people talking about it and, and getting her name out there. And um, you guys were recommended to us, I think, by somebody who was on Reddit. Well, that's that's really awesome to know that the word is being spread about private investigations for the missing uh, and that you were able to find us and now we're actually connected. Um, I want to go back a little bit to your relationship with Ashley, who is Camille's daughter. What was that like when she reached out to you and, and you connected and you started working together on this? How, how did that uh, how did that change your your mission to find uh, Camille and to tell her story? Well, I felt really um, just happy and proud because she was, you could tell that she was really just emotional over the fact that somebody was talking about her mom because she's lived her whole life having nobody care but her. And something about her story, it just, it just aided me because I, I had parents that, you know, were less than perfect. My mom was also an exotic dancer. My dad struggled with addiction and I just couldn't imagine being in her shoes and losing somebody that I loved and having nobody care. So it kind of became, the, the more I got to know Ashley and to love her, I, I just became focused on getting her these answers. Um, and it, it does, it, it keeps me up at night sometimes. I, I really, it really just bothers me that somebody could vanish and, and nobody would look for them or care. It's, it's just heartbreaking. Camille vanished on September 26th of 1994. Um, we actually found out that she had vanished shortly before that. Um, oh. She vanished on September 4th was what the um, police officer in charge of her case is now telling us. He found that while her um, court record shows she had a court case on September 26th, her arraignment, she did not actually arrive to it. So we now believe that she vanished in the two-week period between September 4th and September 26th. We just don't know when. Wow. Well, that is uh, that is excellent uh, research that you've done. I love it when uh, the details are adjusted in real time like that. Mm -hmm. She was 30 years old when she disappeared. That's correct? Yes. And can you give a little bit of a background on Camille? You did mention that she had a maybe an alternative lifestyle. Uh, one thing that I gathered from the document that, that we were pulling the information from was she had a lot of big dreams. She has, she had a lot of expectations for herself and it just seemed like this spiral happened. Can you talk a little bit about uh, her personal life? Camille was known to be a really, really smart girl. She got good grades. She was very intelligent. Um, she was very talented too. She was a dancer. She took ballet for a decade and she was a semi-pro ice skater. Everybody really thought that she would become something incredible um, because she really had that. She just had the drive and the ambition and she was talented. She was beautiful. Um, things seemed to kind of go downhill uh, when she met Gary Dotson. Gary Dotson at the time was a big news story. He was all over the TV shows because he had been arrested for rape of a teenage girl years prior, like six years beforehand. And later the girl in question came out 
and said that he did not rape her and that she had made it up to cover up for uh, her boyfriend and her having sex. She was worried that she could get pregnant and her foster family would freak out on her. So she made up that she was raped. And um, they were going to release Gary Dodson from prison, but there was a big kind of argument about was the girl lying then or is she lying now? And it was all over the news. Um, Camille would watch it and she was really just captivated by it. I don't know what she saw in Gary that she just connected to so much, but she did. And uh, she decided to go to his clemency hearing. And when she was there, she presented him with a white carnation. And uh, it was talked about in the newspapers after and he never forgot the beautiful girl that gave him that white carnation. So as soon as he was freed from prison, he went and he found Camille and they became good friends. They would go around to bars drinking together and hanging out and they fell in love really soon. They uh, actually went to Las Vegas and they got married after Gary's accuser sent them $17,000 that she had received from a book deal. They used that money to elope and buy used cars and uh, they got married in, in Las Vegas they soon had uh, Ashley, my friend, their only daughter. He started to get kind of abusive around then. I, I really think that it, it might not be that Gary was a bad guy. I think it could just have been trauma from those six years that he was in prison as a child rapist when he wasn't one. I mean, I doubt anybody could come out of that totally normal, you know? So um, there was there was some serious abuse issues with Gary Dotson. Um, there was an occasion where he smacked her and she called the police there was an occasion where he had threatened to kill baby Ashley if she tried to leave him. Um, eventually they broke up and she had her own apartment and Gary showed up one day um, and refused to leave. He like broke into the apartment and wouldn't get out. So she was like, I don't want to be here anymore. I want my daughter and me to be far away from Gary. And she decided to move to Las Vegas, um, which is where her mother, Barbara, had lived. Her and Ashley moved out there. And that's really when things just went extremely downhill. Um, she couldn't really get a job doing much because she just had planned to be a housewife at that point. She was going to be Gary Dotson's wife and they were going to have all kinds of money and be on movies and TV shows. And uh, instead, she was poor. She did not go to college. Um, she didn't have much work experience. She started doing bartending jobs and then later realized that she would make more money as a dancer in the local strip clubs. Um, and when she was there, she really just started to develop a drug habit because that's what goes on in strip clubs, you know, even today, but especially in 1991, 1992, um, she developed an addiction to crack cocaine. It's, you know, it slowly became that over just her smoking pot with friends and drinking at the club to her doing cocaine to her eventually ending up on crack. And uh, that's really where things just went downhill for her. She tried to go to rehab multiple times. She never really gave up on life or on her child. Um, she she really did try, and she never missed a court date when she did start to get arrested for her drug use. She always showed up to court and always tried to, to get better. She never gave up. Um, so that's part of why we believe that she's not missing um, by choice and part of why we believe she passed in those two weeks because it was the first time she missed a court date at the end when she um, disappeared. Um, when she vanished, Ashley wasn't there because Barbara had taken her back to Chicago to visit their family. And I guess she just said, you know, I don't think Ashley is happy in this lifestyle. I don't think she's safe. So can I bring her with me? And Camille allowed them to. And when they had returned months later, she was just gone. So uh, Camille was gone when Ashley and it was Ashley's grandmother returned to Vegas. 
Yeah, Ashley and Barbara left. Ashley and Camille's mom, Barbara, went off to Chicago. And when they returned, they couldn't find Camille anywhere. Um, they went looking in the streets. They went looking at the clubs that she worked in. Um, they asked all of her friends. They asked her then husband. Nobody had seen her. Um, they, they couldn't find her anywhere. They called the police and the police said she has drug issues. She's been known to work in prostitution and strip clubs. She probably just took off. She'll be back. It's fine. And they wouldn't look into it. Um, eventually, Barbara had to walk into the police station and insist that they take her missing persons report in person. And they finally did. They wrote it down. But it says on it that they took it from unfounded to zero. They did not believe that she was endangered or that she was missing. And they never really looked into it again. Um, years later, when Camille's childhood best friend, Ellen, found out that she was missing, she called the police and said, I want to hear about what happened to my childhood friend, Camille, who vanished. And they didn't even have an open missing case on her. Whoever had taken that police report deleted it like within two weeks or and she was like, well, we need to file a new one. So a second missing persons report was filed. And finally, at that point, they said seven years is really a lot to have no contact, especially for a woman who had a good relationship with her child and with her mother. So they filed the second missing persons report and classified her as endangered missing, um, which is what she's still classified as today. And she also had a, a second husband. That's correct. She did. So at some point, we're unsure of exactly when. Um, it, it looks like it was around 1993 that she met and fell in love with this man. Um, he went by Cruz. His name was George Cruz Diaz. And uh, he was a Puerto Rican immigrant, but his parents were. He was born in Brooklyn. And he and her got married um, pretty soon after meeting and dating. They eloped in Vegas, just like her and Gary Dotson did. And uh, Ashley remembers him as being kind of like, you know, kind of scary and, and big and frightening and intimidating, kind of like a dark presence. Um, he, much like Gary in the past, ended up hurting and abusing Camille. Um, there was an incident right before they got married in which at the Rummel Motel in Las Vegas, uh, Camille called the police and said that the man she was with in her hotel room was assaulting her and beating her and wouldn't let her leave. And the sad thing is that when the police arrived um, to investigate this call, instead of even speaking to Cruz or taking him away, they arrested Camille because apparently she had a warrant. Um, and so I think that's when she kind of realized that the police weren't going to help her. You know, you call the police on someone for assaulting you and you get arrested and they don't even speak to the guy. I wow. think that's really when she lost faith in the system. And I think that's why... Um, at the very end of her life and when she had that final disappearance and that final arrest, I think that's why she did not want the police to come in. And she told the police when they were at the door to please leave. It, it just seemed like she did not have any faith in the system at all after she had been abused. Ashley remembers her being assaulted by Cruz on multiple occasions. And uh, Camille actually had a recently broken nose when she vanished that she had received from Cruz in the uh, days beforehand. Um, we're not really sure when she and Cruz broke up, but it does appear that they were broken up by around August of 1994, because on the police report from her arrest in September of 1994, they ask her how long she's lived at this motel or this, uh, it, it's like the Seagull Suites apartments are like a long-term rental hotel almost. They're apartments, but you pay for it by like the week. 
she was at one of those with a guy named Francisco Kiko Fernandez, and they were living there together. And they asked how long they've been living there, and they said two weeks. So I'm not sure what happened before that or where she lived, but it appears that her and Cruz broke up before that time, and she was staying with this guy Kiko at that point. And Kiko, just like Cruz, has a history of physical assaults. Um, he has been arrested for domestic assault via strangulation um, two times, which really just jumped out at me and, and freaked me out when I read it. Um, so really, we have a girl who has two different men in her life that are both very dangerous and both have violent pasts. Um, I don't even know where I would go to figure out which one would have hurt her or if it could be totally unrelated and she was hurt on the street. I mean, sex workers, especially inner city sex workers, are injured and, and killed at an alarming rate by strangers. And on top of that, she has that involvement that, you know, she was kind of linked to the mob almost is, is something that we've heard about. We're not sure exactly um, what her link was or if or how deep she was involved beyond just working for somebody who was involved. Um, but we know that she worked for the Crazy Horse, which was owned by um, a, a big mafia guy. And the Crazy Horse, too, which was also owned by the mob. And we know that at some point in time, somebody asked her to do some kind of confidential informant work. We don't know if she ever said yes to it, and we don't know what it was related to. It could have just been a, a random you know, drug peddler on the street and wasn't big at all. Um, we really don't know. But she was asking people about what they knew about being a criminal informant and things like that? Mm -hmm. She had asked her brother, I believe, um, if how being a confidential informant works. That's interesting. Would he know? Sorry, I'm, I was confused why, why she would ask him that. I don't know. I think that at that point in life, she was just desperate to have somebody around to, to you know talk to. And she wanted someone who knows more than, than she did. She seemed to be calling her family and, and friends with all kinds of questions like about the system, whatever it is. I think she was afraid of, of whatever it was and what it could possibly mean for her. Um, but she definitely did ask her brother about what confidential informants do and how that works um, and, and seemed to mention being um, asked to be one. I heard from another guy. His name is Joe Ars, and he was her childhood um boyfriend, I guess, her first love in school. And he recalls her talking about confidential informant stuff too. Um, like I said, I don't know if she said yes to it and I don't know who she would have been informing on. But something that jumped out at me is that Ellen, who was her childhood best friend, she decided to call every single phone number in Camille's Rolodex after she vanished. Um, she was over visiting Camille's mom and decided to go through her things to see if she could find any clues. She went through the whole Rolodex and one phone number under the name Dimitri actually took her to a line for the FBI. So she thought that was that was really just interesting that Camille would have a phone number in her own Rolodex that takes you directly to the FBI. That, along with the confidential informant questions, makes us think that, you know, there might be some legitimacy to that. Wow. Yeah, I definitely want to unpack that a little bit. Uh, but I have a quick question and, and then we can get back to. Uh, this potential uh, CI work that she might have been uh, a part of. Where was her father in all this? So I don't believe that her father was really a, a huge part of, of her and her mom growing up when, when she was little. I believe they were divorced, and I don't think that he was in any way involved. I know that her mom, Barbara, had remarried someone and had another husband at the time. 
but I, I, she didn't seem to be with him when they moved to Las Vegas. Um, when they were in Vegas together, it was it was always just Barbara and just Camille, and they didn't have their family or husband or brothers from Chicago. Gotcha. Thank you. And were uh, this Kiko Fernandez and Cruz, were they affiliated with any any mobs or any gangs that you know of? Not that I know of. Um, I know that Cruz was involved with some drug dealing at some point. From what I've read, he apparently was convicted of attempted murder, um, I believe in 1989, over some kind of drug deal that went bad. He had like slit somebody's throat and left him in the desert, um, but they had survived. And uh, Kiko has had multiple violent um assaults on his record even recently um not long ago i i was monitoring his current girlfriend's facebook page and she posted pictures of bloody rags and towels recently saying that kiko had beat her and and like cracked her head like a walnut and it was really just disturbing so it, it definitely sounds like he has abusive tendencies um and same with cruz I don't know what they're involved in um, when it comes to gang activity or criminal empires, things like that. Um, though I do know that it that Kiko dealt some drugs too, and that he may have been involved in prostitution or, or pimping out women. Um, we're still not even sure if Kiko and her were a couple or if he was trying to pimp her out or if they were friends. We really don't know. We just know that they knew each other well and they lived together when she vanished and that they were fighting the night that they got arrested right before she disappeared. So I don't know. I'm suspicious of all of them, honestly. Yeah, for sure. And then she also has a tattoo that says Cruz on her body. Yeah. She has a tattoo of Cruz's name on her right hip. And Cruz will not speak. Okay. So the, both of them are still around? Cruz and, and Kiko? Yeah. They're both still in Las Vegas. Cruz currently lives in North Las Vegas, and Kiko lives in what you call Naked City. That's the area under the stratosphere um, where a lot of crimes and drug dealing and prostitution goes down. Um, the Kiko's Cuban, and most of the Cuban immigrants in the Las Vegas area, they tend to kind of pick a little area and they stay in it. Since they rent, they might move a few apartments away from one another or to a different house on the same street, but they stay in one little home base, all of them. Um, So Kiko's done that. He's been living in the same little apartment complex for pretty much his whole life, Um, the same one where Camille vanished in. It's that same little tiny area. Um, He's still there. And interestingly enough, he actually has, from what I've heard, at least two other deceased women in his life. He had a wife named Lori who was stabbed to death 38 times. Um, However, he was not convicted of killing her. They arrested um, somebody else's uh, son. Some lady who contacted me told me her son is in jail for the murder of Kiko's ex-wife. And... um, that she believes Kiko did it. But I don't know how much validity there is to that because, you know, you don't want your son to have done anything. You would rather pin it on somebody else. So I really don't know. I just know that he has been involved in violence and um, that he's still in that area. I did try to talk to him. I've contacted him a few times. He said things to me that really weren't consistent with what I know. He told me the last time he saw Camille was in 1989 and that 
she was walking on Sahara Road in a gray jumpsuit with a suitcase, and she left with her old boyfriend, Cruz. And that made no sense to me, because she didn't even know Cruz in 1989, and she was arrested with him in 1994. So I, I just found everything that he was saying really kind of sketchy and didn't make sense. And um, when I called back again later to ask another question, he actually, like, yelled at me and, and threatened me and said he was going to sue me. So I don't, I don't talk to him anymore, but he didn't seem keen on helping or answering my questions. Um, Cruz actually hasn't answered us at all. We were able to get in contact with a sister of his and um, ask if she could give us his number or give him our number just so we could ask some questions because in, in, no case, in no way were we accusing either one of them when we spoke to them. Basically, what we were saying is you guys would know where she was living at the end, who she was talking to, um, just things that could help us in our search. And uh, Cruz said no, he did not want to speak to us at all not even to Ashley, who was once his stepdaughter. So that definitely was disturbing to us as well. He also never filed for divorce from Camille. He is still legally married to her to this day, which is interesting. Despite being engaged to another woman, he has uh, a, a girlfriend right now that thinks they're getting married. We can see them on Facebook. I don't know. It's weird. They're, they're a weird bunch. Yeah. Okay. So Kiko still lives there in near the stratosphere and um, basically lied to you when you asked him some questions? Yeah, he gave me things that really just did not make sense. And I, I could, we could say, well, he's done a lot of drugs in his life. He may be confused. It was a long time ago. That's absolutely possible. I'm not accusing him. Um, but it's also possible that you would make up a time that you saw her and make up that you left with somebody else in order to distance yourself from a crime. What makes me suspicious about both men is that rather than wanting to help and to give us more information, even if it was just as simple, I haven't seen her, but here's a list of friends she had. Here's the address I last saw her at. You know, instead of offering any help at all, they were defensive right off the bat. So that, that's why I, I don't really trust either one of them. What would be the benefit, in your opinion, to remain in a married status with uh, Camille? I really don't know. Um, and maybe he thought that if he files for divorce, it'll show that he knows she's not coming back or something. I really don't know because I don't even think that they were still in a relationship when she vanished. I'm pretty sure they were already estranged at that point. So I don't know why he would never file for a divorce. He also never reported her missing. It took until her mother arrived to report her missing. Um, her mother off the bat wanted them to interview Cruz because she knew that Cruz had previously broken her nose and that he was violent and had a criminal past. But basically the police report said, you know, they've said to interview Cruz, but we're not going to because we don't have any proof that he did anything. So Cruz was never really even looked into. Neither was Kiko. In fact, his name never seems to be mentioned until we filed a public records request for her final arrest, and that arrest report talks about her staying with Kiko and the two of them being arrested together. I do know that he was free when Camille vanished, even though they were both arrested that day um, together. They were both released shortly after, and about a week after Camille vanished, he showed up to his ex-wife Melinda's house. Uh, I have a public records request that kind of shows me that arrest information. And he was arrested for showing up to Melinda's house, his ex-wife, 
demanding some kind of watch that she had inside of his. He wanted it and they got into a fight and he apparently hit her um, and hurt her back or something. She called police and he was arrested again. So I know that in that week that she vanished, Kiko was free because he was out getting arrested himself at his ex-girlfriend's house right after. Um, As for Cruz, I really don't know because I filed for Cruz's um, police reports, but they haven't sent them back to me yet. I'm still waiting. So I, I'm, I'll have to figure out later on if if there's a way that, he, that Cruz was free when she vanished in those two weeks in September. Um, I just know that Kiko was. Yeah, the, good work on that. Good work for uh, on filing all of those um, all those requests. You previously earlier had said that it frustrated you how little media attention she received little or or no media attention her disappearance has have had did receive she had achieved a, a small amount of fame because of her marriage to Gary Dotson right and and that's the confusing yeah. part that she was featured in the news because she married this wrongfully convicted rapist and and when it turns out that he was innocent yeah that's newsworthy mm-hmm. can you uh, just go into into that a little more and your frustration with the lack of coverage of her her disappearance Absolutely. So in Chicago, Camille was really well known. Um, There are pictures of them all over the newspaper. She was well known before they even got married. Um, I've even seen history textbooks about criminology that talk about Gary Dotson's case and mention multiple times in it that as soon as he got out, he got with this girl Camille, Camille Dardanes and they got married and they spent all their time together and they have this child. So it's been talked about on many, many platforms. It's in tons of newspaper articles, in books, um, and they were even on Good Morning America together. They were interviewed. Um, So this is a girl that was known in the area, um, enough so that every time Gary got rearrested for assaulting Camille, it was all over the newspapers. Gary hurts his wife again. The wife's being interviewed. They're asking Camille questions about it. So she definitely was very well known in Chicago and in that area. which just makes it even more odd to me that when she vanished in Las Vegas, nobody seemed to care. I think it all comes down to the police. They didn't care about the case, so they never made any kind of public pleas for information. They never had any newspaper articles written about her. Um, The only thing that was ever written about her was in 2003, when her childhood friend Alan contacted local journalists in Chicago where they grew up and had an article written about her. Um, But that's the only thing that ever was in a paper about her, and it wasn't in the Las Vegas area, so it did not generate any leads at all. Um, Besides that, there was nothing, no news coverage, no public announcements, no interviews or anything. It's just really odd to me that someone with such an interesting life um, could just be completely forgotten about. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. 
Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. Yeah, it's uh, pretty tragic, and it's also really uh, telling about the uh, media at the time, even the media of today. Just, you know, the sexy story is the one that gets the lead, and the sexy story when she married Gary was that, you know, they found love, and he was a convicted rapist and wrongfully convicted rapist, and that's newsworthy. But when somebody like that gets involved in... Um, the lifestyle that she became involved in really through no fault of her own, just very bad circumstances. There's no coverage on it. And again, the police don't care because they're, I guess, working on something that has more of a high profile. Absolutely. And it, it really does bother me because you may not care about somebody based on their lifestyle, but regardless of how you feel about them, about their circumstances, about whether they use drugs or whether they engaged in sex work or whether they were homeless or whatever, you may not see value in them, but somebody still hurt somebody. It's pretty clear that somebody murdered a woman and you may not care about the person that they hurt, but what if it's someone you love next? How do you know that the next person they take out won't be somebody that you see value in. You're letting somebody continue to prey on others and hurt people and and steal people's loved ones just because you don't see value in those people. You feel no need to chase after this guy who did this because you say, oh, well, she was just, she was just an addict or she was just a prostitute or whatever. Nobody's ever just an addict or just a prostitute. She's a mom. She's a sister. She was a dancer. She was a girlfriend and a wife and a daughter, she was beloved and she deserves to have some kind of justice. And if it was their kid, if it was that cop's child or that cop's mother or sister, I guarantee you he'd do everything in his power to find her no matter what and to figure out who hurt her. But because it's just somebody who was on the street and who they didn't see any value in, they didn't even look. And the sad thing is the more I look into her case and and really research um, the homicides in Las Vegas, the more I'm seeing there's tons of these. Um, A few years after she vanished, there was a serial predator who was targeting um, sex workers in Las Vegas. The first time he got a girl and he tried to strangle her and she got away. She broke out of the vehicle. And uh, the second time he picked up another girl and she was found murdered in the desert, chopped into pieces. It's horrible. So now we know there was somebody in 1998 that was killing and trying to kill multiple prostitutes in the area. And it just seemed like no one even looked for it. There was one newspaper article, and they never really looked into it again. And um, it's just like, I don't know if it's related to Camille's or not, but it just seems like the Las Vegas Metro Police Department only look into your cases and only put forth any effort if they see value 
in you as a human being. And if they think that you're in any way flawed or not a picture perfect soccer mom, they're not interested. And uh, I don't think that's fair. I think all human beings should have equal rights and should be valued and and looked for. And that somebody who's dangerous and, and hurting people has to be stopped, regardless of what you feel about their victims. Absolutely. And uh, I think Vegas kind of still has a little bit of that uh, Wild West quality to it. And and I think, you know, we've heard a lot of these stories about their law enforcement as well. Um, you know, it's obviously a... Uh, a big city with a lot of uh, sort of transient people and tourists too. So that could mm-hmm. lead to some natural issues. But I was looking up this crazy horse and the crazy horse too, that, uh, that Camille worked at definitely has a mm-hmm. uh, history of some, uh, some criminal uh, acts, aspects going on gang shooting outside. Definitely not a, probably the safest place. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know um, how far, she was involved with either of those establishments besides just that she worked for them at some point in time. But they they definitely have a lot of criminal history. I know that the one, they found the former owner of it, they found his head cut off in the desert. So that's always been really uh, sketchy to me that the guy who owned it was found beheaded. And in the Crazy Horse 2, there was an entire FBI raid on it. Um, They called it Operation G-String. And they were investigating them for corruption, for drug use, for all that stuff. Um, And they actually shut them down, um, the FBI, through a raid. So there's definitely criminal involvement in both of those clubs. Um, But I don't know. I I can't picture um, big mob bosses letting just a dancer know their secrets and involving her in whatever crime they're doing. So I don't really really know how that would have played into her disappearance. Um, At this point, I, I tend to believe that she either was killed by a random person, like she accepted a ride from somebody, or she had gone back to doing sex work and a random person hurt her, or she was harmed by the two, one of the two men she was involved with um, romantically, either Kiko or Cruz. Uh, I, I really don't know. It could go either way. And there's so many possibilities. It, it's hard because we can't really, we can't really narrow it down because we just don't have enough evidence or proof to say either way. Absolutely. And it's making me think about when her friend, I think you said her name was Ellen, went through her Rolodex and found the contact information to someone named Dimitri at the FBI. Is there any other indication that she had plans to try to get information about the criminal activity that was happening at the crazy horse rest or the crazy horse strip clubs. Did she maybe work, try to work out a deal with her past convictions? Maybe they would be erased. Is there any other, I guess, evidence or information that she was in like leaning in that direction? Well, we still have no idea if it was in any way um, related to the crazy horse or to the mob. The only thing we know for sure is that she was supposedly approached to be a confidential informant on somebody and that she also worked with the crazy horse at some point. That's really all we know about it. However, um, because of that FBI phone number in her Rolodex, it definitely does make me think that she at least looked into this or at least spoke to them. But like I said, it could be something as simple as her flipping on a drug dealer or a pimp. We don't know that it was any huge thing. Um, They could have used her to testify against anybody, really. Um, Something that I did notice was that towards the end of her life, before her disappearance, she started to be arrested for tiny things, like just mundane things. 
She was arrested not infrequently in the years prior. She definitely got arrested maybe every couple months, um, maybe every six months, um, usually for either purchasing drugs or for being on the street soliciting. But at the end of her life in like July and uh, August of 1994, she started to be arrested for stuff like jaywalking. And like, that's really odd. When do you arrest somebody just for jaywalking? Um, and one time for they stopped her on the street to demand her ID for, I don't, I don't know what reason. And then when she opened her bag, they looked into it and pulled out a drug pipe and arrested her for possession. So it definitely seems like towards the end, they were almost following her around, waiting for her to slip so they could arrest her. Like they wanted arrests to pile up. And I know that's a pretty typical thing that people do when they want somebody to flip or testify against somebody. They will stack a bunch of charges up against you and make you feel like you're about to get in a lot of trouble and then say, you know, all of this will be gotten rid of if you will tell us about so-and-so. So I've wondered if maybe that's a possibility just because she wasn't before that being arrested for mundane things or being stopped on the street to have her purse checked. I mean, it just seems very off to me that for jaywalking and just walking on the side of the street with a purse, they're stopping her and arresting her. Um, I, I definitely think that somebody wanted to get her in and arrest her for just anything they could come up with um, to either talk to her and get her to testify against somebody. Yeah, that's a really interesting. Good observation there. Uh, I thought you were going to go down the path where she was being arrested for mundane things as sort of an excuse to get her into the police station so that she could deliver the information that she might have as a CI, because I know that they do that, that they'll set up these arrests so that the the person who's the CI can simply say, no, they, they, they nabbed me for <laughs> jaywalking or they found a pipe in my bag. So it seems more legit why they'd be talking to the cops. Yeah, that's a possibility as well. Really interesting. Uh, do you have any information on um, the last moment that or the last memory that uh, Ashley has of her mom? Yeah, Ashley, after her and Barbara went on vacation, like an extended trip to Chicago, in the beginning, they were in touch with Camille all the time. Camille would call and check in on Ashley. Um, at one point, she had gotten arrested and she had to uh, send them letters from the jail. She had been arrested for a drug use and it was really like a disappointing thing for Barbara because she thought that her and Ashley would go to Chicago, spend some time there and leave Camille there to work out her problems. And when they returned, she would be in a better place in life because she was going to drug court. She never missed a court date. She was doing her rehab. She was really trying. Camille, she really did love her daughter and she had problems. She had struggles mostly, I think, due to the trauma and abuse that she had dealt with and the circumstances that she was stuck living in and really didn't see a way out of. Um, but she did love her daughter. She was a really doting, devoted mom. And so when she just stopped contacting them, I think that they knew something was wrong. Um, and when she stopped going to her court dates and, and to her rehab and drug court things. Um, so she had been calling and sending letters in the beginning and then they kind of just started to fade away. When she was in jail, letters stopped coming and they figured she must still be in jail or in solitary or something. And there was like one last phone call. I think she said it was in June of 1994 or something around then. And then she just didn't call again. And so I think at that point, they really thought she either went on some downward spiral. She was using again. She was in prison. She was in rehab. They didn't know. But they just always thought, we'll go back to Las Vegas, we'll find Cruz, and we'll figure out where she's at and how she's doing. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Ashley does say she remembers in her last call to her that she told her to be a good girl, 
And she sounded very sad almost, like she knew something bad was going to happen. So Ashley's always wondered if maybe she suspected that the end was near. Um, in her police report, it does mention that friends stated that Camille was acting like she was afraid of something right before she vanished, but they don't list the names of these friends. And I haven't been able to find anybody to confirm that, um, but it's in the police report. And that kind of, um, it, it definitely gives validity to Ashley's feeling about their last call that she was indeed in, in fear of something. Um, and when I read her other arrest reports, when she's being picked up in cars by these undercover officers, they do all always describe her as being paranoid and looking behind them all the time. And so I, I definitely think she knew that she was in danger. Well, I can't speak from experience, but uh, in uh, in what I picture, criminal informant work um, could definitely be dangerous. So if she was involved in that, could be along the lines of what happened to her. But um, I guess I'm curious, Did has anyone ever reached out to the FBI to uh, ask them or try to confirm that she was a criminal informant? I think Ellen tried at some point, but she did not get anywhere with it. They also would not speak to her um, at the local Las Vegas Metro Police Department. When Alan started kind of hounding them in the mid-2000s, they actually sent a cease and desist. And I think that's why Ellen kind of gave up and stopped. And um, since me and Ashley have picked up where she left off, basically, um, we're lucky. We're not getting the same roadblocks that she did. I think nowadays things have really progressed. And you know, they're starting to care about cases like this. Maybe maybe even if they don't care about it personally, it's just the tides are changing and people are hearing these stories and saying it's wrong that women are being ignored. It's wrong that addicts or sex workers aren't being looked for. Um, so it definitely seems like the police we're dealing with now are a lot more um, willing to speak to us and, and a lot more caring um, than the ones that Ellen was dealing with about 20 years ago. So I hope that we'll get more information and more records from the police. Um, she does have a detective assigned to her case. And I sent an email recently asking him about how the FBI thing would work if he knew anything about it. Um, he hasn't answered me yet. I, I've also looked up doing a Freedom of Information um, Act request with the FBI, though I'm not really sure if they would you know, grant us anything, um, considering it's probably all confidential information. Um, but what we do know is that she is not in witness protection program. I verified that a few times over. Um, people always suggest it when they hear about this case, um, but they really would not have taken her away without letting her mom and daughter at least know that she was going to be in the program. Um, they won't tell you where the person is or what their new name is, but they'll at least inform you that she's going into witness protection program and they won't be having an open case on her. So we've ruled that out. Wow, good work on that. Uh, I mean, the the question is there. I think I had the the question was sort of rattling around in my head as I was going over the document, but I had no idea that you could actually get that information. I, I just assumed that no one would say anything. I mean, I and that's what I thought. There's still people who say, well, maybe they are, and they don't need to tell you. Maybe it's some other branch of government. I don't know. But from what I've spoken to with the police. They they both seem to say that's ridiculous and that they would have at least told uh, Camille's mom and daughter where, you know, that she was leaving. They wouldn't just take her away and they wouldn't have an open police report. They wouldn't be looking into her case at all 
if they knew she was gone, you know, if they knew she was safely relocated, I doubt there would be any kind of effort. Um, it's not that they've made a lot of effort, but they did at least take Ashley's DNA and the DNA of her mother, Barbara, and they put it into um, NAMIS and they run it um, every week compared to any Jane Doe's. So, I mean, I, I doubt that the police would be putting forth that effort and putting any money at all into adding DNA to a database if they know that she's safe somewhere, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's awesome that uh, she's being run through NamUs. It's a, a great organization, and it's definitely important in this case uh, when you have so little to work on. And it's uh, also very important that Ashley has given her DNA. That's very uh, that's very good. How close are you to her childhood friend, Ellen, in your investigation? So Alan is great. She worked really, really hard on this. And I don't think we would have any of the progress that we make today if Alan didn't start hounding those police in 2003 to reopen the case because they weren't even looking into Camille's case. They didn't care. Um, but Ellen, Ellen worked really hard until they were threatening her. They were sending her cease and desist. So they didn't want to speak to her. So eventually it was just so it was just so just overwhelming for her and, and just was really messing with her quality of life that she couldn't focus on anything else. And she decided to step away from it. But she told Ashley, you know, if you ever want to know about your mom or you want to see old pictures and my memories, just call me. I'm always here when you're ready. And um, now that Ashley has taken this kind of um, from her and is starting where she left off, um, we still do go to Alan for some help because she can kind of remember the old guard of the police department that she dealt with and she might know about Camille's childhood. Um, she's in our little group chat that we go to all day updating each other on what we find. Um, she's been really, really helpful. That's awesome. Um, has there been any sightings, any credible uh, sightings of um, Camille? So it's interesting you said that. I did very recently have somebody send me a message saying, um, the girl you're looking for is not dead. I have seen her alive in the mid 2000s, like 2006. And she told me a house that she would stay at and said that they were with Cuban guys, not Kiko specifically, but a guy who knew Kiko. And I know this lady doesn't know Kiko because on her Facebook page they're they like each other's posts. Like they're, they're clearly friends. Um, but she told me she saw Camille and that she was being kept in the house on a cul-de-sac. And she remembered the street name, but not the address. And she said it was a greenhouse. And when I went onto Google Maps or Google Earth, and I went to 2006 to see what it looked like then, I was able to find a greenhouse in that cul-de-sac. It's not green anymore, but it was when she described it as being green. And it does look like somebody named Juan it was the owner of it, which is what she had stated in her message to us. So... I don't know how much stock I put into this because, A, this is a woman who is being arrested all the time. I just can't imagine how somebody who has been arrested like that and has been with dealing with drug addiction for so long could all of a sudden one day never do drugs again, never get arrested again, never end up in any way in a hospital, in jail. It just doesn't compute to me. And also, it doesn't make sense to me that she would leave her daughter behind. She loved her daughter. She loved her mother. She would find a way to speak to them and she wouldn't just forget about them. I know everybody in every case says that, you know, it's, it's always being said she wouldn't leave us. She wouldn't leave us. Um, but she really, she wouldn't. Um, she loved her daughter and she was always in contact with her, even when she was having problems, even when she was in jail or rehab. Um, 
she she still loved her kid and, and was very involved and went to her birthday parties and dressed her up and they would wear matching outfits. She was a she was a good mom despite her problems. Um so I can't picture her choosing to leave her family behind. I also can't picture her managing to never get caught again um, with drug use or soliciting or anything like that. Uh, and I just don't understand how she would live without, you know, any of the documents or without using her social security number again. It just does not make any sense to me that she could be alive out there somewhere. Um, that said, I, I have reached out to the local homeless shelters and they all put up posters of her um, just, just to see if any of the homeless people that use their facilities might remember her or have seen her before. Um, I, I tend to think that the woman's tip about seeing her alive e is either mistaken identity, like she saw a different brown-haired woman hanging out with the Cubans, or is her trying to cover for the actions of her friend Kiko by saying, oh no, he couldn't have killed her, she's alive. I, I really don't know. I, I just don't think that she could be alive out there. It just does not, it, it doesn't seem likely to me. Is this something you do often? Look into cases, missing person cases. Um, not to this level. Um, this one, I've just, I'm just I'm hyper focused on it. I, we work really, really hard. We just have folders and folders of documents. Um, we get more and more information just by getting it out there. I boost posts on Facebook. I'll pay a few dollars to make it be an ad to everyone in Las Vegas, and I start getting messages in. Um, and the public records requests have been amazing too. When I go through them, uh. I can find names in it and I can look up those names and put them into Bin Verified or another background check app. And uh, I, I find them and I'm able to contact them. The one lady's in jail right now, but I was able to track her down and be like, hey, do you remember getting arrested with a girl in 1992? And she was like, yeah, I remember her. And she had some good information about friends they had, places she went, what she knew about Kiko. So, I mean, really just, just kind of getting in there and, and targeting in all these different people she knew and all the areas she spent time in. I think that's how we're going to end up solving this case. And the thing that makes me sad is that it's something the police so easily could have done. It's not like we're doing anything amazing or experimental. We're doing what should have been done 20 years ago. Um, and and they, they really kind of failed us on it. Um, and they don't seem to care enough to help us today. So we're pretty much alone doing this. Well, you're doing a great job. And I'm curious how you even figured out where to start and your and your methods um you're you're really thorough and you seem to be very respectful of the family and you know the friends of camille H how did you figure out the process your personal process so she and i ashley and i first started um by we started looking up court documents she was talking about how she wasn't even sure if the custody was ever transferred from camille to her mother um so I started looking up court documents for that. And then we would find here's a court paper showing her court date for soliciting. Here's one showing her for drug use. And then we found one that was in September of 1994. And that was like, it blew our mind because her police report reports her disappearing in May of 1994. So how could she, you know, how could she have been alive all those months later? And it, it turned out that the police just didn't even know. They must not have even checked their own records and saw that this woman was in their own custody months after the missing date they put on her police report later. Like they didn't even put forth their minimum effort. So that's when me and Ashley really realized this isn't just that they couldn't solve it. This is them not trying at all. I mean, literally, you're going to have it on your missing report. So-and-so vanished in May 1994. And then 
I'm going to find a police report showing that you arrested her in September 1994. That's just complete incompetence. So at that point, that's when we were like, we need to start from scratch and, and really go into this deeper because they did not do it. They just did not put forth even the bare minimum effort. So we started doing background check apps and running names. We were trying to figure out where Cruz was. Um, and that was hard because we didn't know what his real name was. Cruz was his middle name or nickname. His real name is George. Um, and we only figured that out by filing for their marriage certificates, which we got in the mail and were able to figure out what his real name is and then we were able to track him down. We also have a lady named Lori who's been really, really helpful to us because her specialty is reuniting adopted uh, children with their birth parents or the birth parents with the adopted children. And she does so via a bunch of background check apps. She's very good at tracking people down. So she's been really helpful. She's in our little group chat. And whenever we have a new name we hear um, in a tip, she helps us kind of find them. And once we find them, I usually call. Ashley's a little bit shy. She doesn't like to do the phone calls. It freaks her out. Um, but I'll cold call them and ask if they remember anything about Camille. And uh, sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. But I would say more often that they don't know what I'm talking about and don't remember her at all because they were arrested multiple times in their life. And, you know, they don't remember the one time they were arrested in some hotel 25 years ago. Um, but occasionally I do find somebody who remembers her and they're able to give us some tips and information. And like I said, none of them even knew she was missing. So they had no idea that what they knew was in any way valuable. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization, Private Investigations for the Missing, because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter, Brianna, disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.